This week on the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln podcast, we have Dr. Stacy Pratt McDermott, who's going to talk with us about Mary Todd Lincoln, life as a historian, and all things Lincoln. the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me is Rail Splitter Nick. What's up, Internet Land? And Rail Splitter Mary. Hey, Rail Splitters, how's it going? And we are so lucky today. We have a guest for you on the show again uh, this week, uh, Dr. Stacy Pratt McDermott. Uh, Dr. Stacy, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Lincoln Loonies? <laughs> <laughs> we are loonies indeed. So, um, if we why don't we just start off kind of easy? If you want to just tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and uh, maybe what kind of brought your interest to to Lincoln, to Lincoln? And the Lincoln family, I guess. Okay. Well, I am an accidental Lincoln historian. I was doing a master's degree at the University of Illinois at Springfield. And I had a history professor, the director of the, what was then the Lincoln Legal Papers. And he asked me to do an internship. So I kind of got, I was doing my thesis on Ida B. Wells and the progressive era. So I kind of got moved back in history and time a little bit. Um, kind of got the bug for scholarly editing. Really liked it. Um, it's a weird craft and it suited me a great deal. And the internship led to a contractual job, which led to an entry-level job, which led to a bigger job. And then ultimately, um, I was the assistant director of the Lincoln Papers. I was with the Lincoln Papers for 20 years. Um, so I've written a lot about Lincoln, studied Lincoln almost exclusively for 20 years. And then in 2015, I published a biography of Mary Lincoln. Right, and we definitely want to talk about that, and for our listeners, that biography is called Mary Lincoln, Southern Girl, Northern Woman. Um, the first question I wanted to ask before we kind of jump into a lot of Lincoln things, um, we do have some younger listeners. Nick and I both work at a, at a public high school here in Northern Illinois. Um, I don't know if Nick's experience is similar to mine, but I had a love for history as a student, and I was very much told, like, there is no such thing as a career in history. If you, you know, if you want to major in what you like to learn about, there's, you know, you, you know, you got to find a job. Um, so we both ended up becoming history teachers at the high school level. So mm -hmm. could you talk to us a little bit about, like, what is it like to be a historian? What is it like to, you know, to be a professional uh, history historian and, um, you know, using a history degree since apparently it's possible. <laughs> apparently our guidance counselors were lying to us, or at least to me. It is possible. You know, it's really great. I feel lucky every day uh, because I love what I do. I've never, I've never made a lot of money doing this work, but um, every day I enjoy it. Uh, the research and the writing is just, it's, it, it's wonderful. Um, but there aren't a lot of jobs in history, unfortunately. Um, I've been, I've just been, I think, really lucky. Right. Well, you, our listeners can't see us, obviously. They're just audio, but we do see the, the beautiful bookshelf behind you. So you apparently have had a career that at least has given you riches in, in words anyway. So Yes, I have a lot of books. <laughs> and this, awesome. is just, this is just one shelf. I have several, many others. 
So it sounds like a teacher and historian's pay is about the same. <laughs> right. So yeah, yeah. Well, I have, you know, I never was interested in teaching. So getting going the professor route was not something that, you know, ever really occurred to me. I really liked the scholarly editing. Um, to me, it's kind of the perfect middle ground between uh, academic history and public history. Right. Because I get to do a lot of the research, but it's also there's a public component to it as well. Um, and, but it's not working in a museum or in a repository somewhere, which I probably wouldn't have liked so much. So it's really a good balance between the two, uh, scholarly can, editing. Can you explain what you mean by scholarly editing? Maybe for well, some of our listeners yeah. that don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So basically what we did at the Lincoln Papers, we went out in the world and we found all these Lincoln documents and then editing them is a, it's a process of things. So you do transcription of them. So you make the, do the, the documents themselves, you make them accessible textually. So people can, we, we typed them all in so you could word search them and, and all of that. And then we also make them intellectually accessible. You annotate the documents. So you offer historical context for the documents. You identify people and places and historical events within the documents. And then you also connect documents with other documents so that you begin to kind of flesh out this document, this kind of living, breathing story. Every document is really a, a story. And then you tell the kind of historical uh, context of it, uh, which makes it even a bigger, more important story. So that's kind of scholarly editing in a nutshell. Yeah, sounds that, like fun to me. Yes, it's great. Sure. I love it. <laughs> um, so... Um, just to kind of start us off, you know, I'll ask the first question, maybe kind of turn it over to, to my co-hosts um, about uh, Mary Todd Lincoln and um, also maybe a little bit about, you know, we kind of talk a lot about historic narrative, how is, how is history told, um, which kind of you talked about with the historic editing, like, you know, what we have access to and how history is always changing when you find new things and how the stories were told and by whom were they told. Um, so I guess um, kind of a general question um, that we've kind of talked about on the show from, you know, from time to time, how unfair, and that may be a loaded question, how fair, I guess, or unfair has history been to Mary Todd Lincoln, in your opinion? Okay, well, first of all, I'm going to stop and say that I don't like to call her Mary Todd Lincoln. Um, she was Mary Lincoln. She was born Mary Ann Todd, and for a while she was Mary Ann Todd until her sister Ann was born, and then she became Mary Todd. When she was a young woman who moved to Springfield, she was Mary Todd or Miss Todd or Polly. Some people called her Polly, uh, you know, or Molly or pet names. But when she married Abraham Lincoln, she w became Mary Lincoln. She never signed her name, Mary Todd Lincoln. She only signed it Mary Lincoln, Mrs. Abraham Lincoln, Mrs. Lincoln or ML, if it was a more casual correspondence. So um, for, for starters, I think um, she's been appropriated. She was appropriated by feminist historians in the 1960s and 70s, calling her Mary Todd Lincoln. And so even though they were trying to kind of rescue her from a domestic kind of historical context, I think they did her an injustice because the, they, a lot of the male Lincoln biographers, I think, have been really hard on Mary, accusing her of being... A, a bold and forward woman at a time when women weren't supposed to be politically engaged. And Mary Lincoln was politically engaged, but she was never engaged to be outside of a context of her own husband's political sphere. So I think to call her Mary Todd Lincoln is not only historically inaccurate, but it's also unfair, I think, to her. 
as well, if that makes sense. Um, so that kind of leads me into um, kind of how I got interested in Mary Lincoln and telling her story. Um, when I was working at the Lincoln Papers, I was giving presentations and going to conferences and interacting with a lot of pe people in the Lincoln studies field. And everything I heard at every conference, every paper, any biography you read by male Lincoln biographers, it's all very negative towards Mary. And I became, you know, I kind of had my feminist backup with all along. And so a lot of this was, the biography was probably churning in me for a really long time before I even started to write it. But I think that they have, they've basically a lot of the, the mainstream Lincoln biographers like Michael Burlingame for starters, um, less to a lesser extent, David Donald, I think he was a lot more fair to Mary. But what they've done is they've used kind of a, a modern gendered kind of idea about women and they've appropriated that on here. Plus, I think they have unfairly judged Lincoln's love for Mary as well, which I think is grossly unfair. Mary, uh, Lincoln chose Mary for, they give him, they give Lincoln credit for all kinds of things and all kinds of decisions that he made, but they refuse to give him credit for choosing Mary Lincoln as his wife. Um, and so I think, generally speaking, the male biographers of Lincoln have been grossly unfair to Mary Lincoln. Do you feel that, uh, you know, do you feel that uh, they've been biased on how they look at Lincoln? Because you don't hear of many, you know, female biographers of Lincoln himself. You're absolutely right. And that may be part of it. Um, but it's it's a. I don't know. I'm a little confused that e what every single Lincoln biographer is a sexist. Um, maybe, I guess. Um, but it does kind of seem that way, that there is a gender divide. So historians who have written about Mary Lincoln and they're male, they've tended to be negative against her. And then the female historians like Jean Baker wrote a really good full biography of Mary Lincoln in the 1980s that's very balanced and fair. Now, I will say that Jason Emerson, uh, with whom I do not agree on every point, um, he is, um, I, I don't agree with him on everything, but he is more fair and tender towards Mary than other um, biographers have been. And I also think Ken Winkle's tiny little volume on Mary and and Abraham's marriage for that Lincoln Concise Library series is also a lot more balanced and fair. So we might be turning a corner a little bit with her, uh, perhaps. Once Michael Burlingame is, you know, his biography, obviously his two volume biography is kind of the standard that people go to. And he hates Mary Lincoln. And he, I have had numerous arguments uh, with Michael Burlingame over the years about Mary Lincoln. I'd love to be a fly on the wall for, for many of those conversations. <laughs> yeah. um, and on the show, uh, well, at least personally, me everywhere I can, and definitely on the show, I've been a uh, uh, proponent of Burnley Game and talked to him a lot. So I'm very happy to hear uh, a, a consenting opinion. And I just love the fact that yeah. historians have, like, I don't know why, that just makes me happy that that happens. Like, yeah. You know, well, we do. Yeah. And over the years, I've known Michael for many years. Um, and so he, he's actually, he's been very supportive of me over the years, but he also, he and I, every time, every time I, I meet him, we argue about Mary Lincoln. I'm going to see him in, um, here in March at the Abraham Lincoln Institute in DC. And we'll probably, you know, tussle about Mary Lincoln even then. So just, it's fun. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I don't know why. I just love that that happens. That's awesome. <laughs> Do you think, you know, with us becoming, you know, uh, you can make the argument that some things have changed, obviously, here, um, especially for women in society and what their role is and how we perceive their role to be. Do you think future historians, male historians, will be as tough on her? Um, you know, I guess it's kind of same, kind of what you think about current society. Or do you think the male historians who will write books in the future, do you think that they will have a more open mind and look at her um, in a more bias-free manner? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think with, with everything, we, we ask different questions as time kind of rolls on, right? So... Uh, Jean Baker was kind of the, really, I mean, Ruth Paint, Painter Randall wrote a biography of, of the Lincoln marriage, um, but it didn't, it wasn't really viewed as a serious kind of scholarly effort, right? So it never, ever entered into the bi Lincoln biographers. It wasn't really on their radar screen, not to any real extent, beyond like the domestic kind of realm. Um, Jean Baker wrote her book in the 1980s, very, very much over, you know, feminist undertones throughout and it's definitely trying to rescue Mary from you know the male biographers who who have been so it was the first and so the biographies that really came in the 1990s I think Donald I think was influenced uh, the the David Donald's biography of Lincoln I think reflects um, some understanding of the nuances that Jean Baker offered um, but but not all historians did that. In the last probably five years, you know, we have Jason Emerson, who's kind of making a cottage industry of Mary Lincoln. Um, and although, like I said, I don't agree with him on every point, he does have a sensitive kind of approach to her. And she's not a cardboard, you know, character to him. Um, and then I also think Ken Winkle's book, too, it also reflects, you know, kind of a changing attitude because we've asked different questions about women's status and women's roles and also contextualizing Mary within that um, better. So, yeah, I do. I'm hopeful. I think, you know, it, it's always kind of a trajectory like that. So, yeah, I think biographers are already starting to be a little more fair towards her. And hopefully my book will make some you know, bit of an impact on that on that front as well. Yeah, so be proud to, for it, sure. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I hope it I was does. Just gonna, I was just going to say, like, after reading, I finished your book a few days ago, Stacy, and it is it's excellent. It's the first Mary Lincoln bio I've ever read, and I have to say, like, um, since hearing you speak last year at the First Lady's Library, and then reading mm -hmm. this book, and just it really helped change my opinion of Mary Lincoln because I've been into Lincoln since I was six years old, and I've always known that Mary was his wife, but <laughs> just. I never took the time to really study her other than what I read about in the biographies. Right. And then I started, you know, reading a little bit more about her and seeing like, oh, she's a really interesting, strong lady. Yeah. And just she not only as Link, not only as Abraham's wife, but just she gives us a glimpse into women of the 19th century, I think. Right. As well. And that's why she's important in her own right. And um, I think maybe I, I would hope in the future that she becomes more and more important and that she's cast more in a positive light than what she has been. Right. And I know there's many myths about her as well that exist. And the other thing too is her mental health, you know, that right. she did right. have depression and all that. And I'd like to think that with our better understanding and more openness towards things like depression and bipolar disorder that 
you know, historians will start to cast her in a more, I guess, empathetic light. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the things that I think is really extraordinary about Mary Lincoln is that she really did have a lot of suffering in her life, mm -hmm. um, physical and emotional suffering. So she was plagued by headaches almost her entire adult uh, life. She had Tad's delivery gave her a gynecological injury that affected her for the rest of her life. She had some sort of mental health issue. We don't know. I think she exhibits kind of manic depressive. I'm, but you know, it's we cannot really diagnose people. But she definitely had some emotional problems, and she had real highs and real lows. And so, it, it clearly, if she'd have lived today, she might have had medication and and felt a lot better. She certainly would have had better health. Mm -hmm. you, on top of all of that, then you put, um, you know, she she buried three of her children um, and she was sitting next to Lincoln in that theater when his head was blown off. And so that the fact that no historian has ever given her any kind of empathetic approach, all that suffering that she went through mm -hmm. and yet she really was not, I mean, everybody wants to talk about her protracted grief after Willie died and, and she was in her bed for two, probably two full weeks. Um, but she was writing letters just a couple of months later after Lincoln died, she's, you know, she's kind of back, you know, writing letters and moving around and actually engaged and reading the news and still being fired up about politics. And she's struggling in her personal relationships, but she's overcoming those barriers. She almost never missed a day when she was in Washington, she visited six soldiers. And it was a rare day that a headache even kept her from going. So she really was a strong woman on in, when you think about all of those physical mm -hmm and emotional problems that she had. And so I think you're really right, Mary. I think that people will start, historians will start to use those kinds of things as context for evaluating historical characters. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But it, 20 years ago, nobody was really asking those yes, questions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, you're talking mid 19th century history, obviously. So, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate reality. I think she's kind of defined as her role relative to her spouse, um, right. as opposed to, you know, in her own right as a person. But I do think that that narrative, or at least from, you know, from my perspective, what I, what I remember as a kid and what I remember hearing is like really it's almost exclusively about mental illness. And then as a way to build up Abraham Lincoln as like coping with this, like he, like he had a, he, like he had a home front exactly. battle going exactly. on at the same time. Well, it's really, it's a delicious dichotomy, right? I mean, you have the mythic godlike Lincoln and then this Hellcat woman is the, is, you know, kind of the, I mean, it's, it's really too delicious uh, for historians to have, you know, ignored, but they, what they've ignored in the process is, I mean, you, you well, especially with Burlingame, because Burlingame does accept a lot of Lincoln's own issues and wrote a whole book about Lincoln's emotional issues. Uh, but yet he doesn't afford, he's never afforded Mary any of the same sorts of considerations. So, oh, nice cup, Mary. Thank you. <laughs> That's, I have a of notebook course you're that painting out of it. It's of awesome. course you're drinking out of a Lincoln, Lincoln cup. Yeah, yeah for, our listeners can't see it, but it is a Lincoln mug, and he's kind of got like 
<laughs> rainbows on them. I'll make sure I post a picture of it tomorrow, or when the when this episode is posted, I'll post a picture of it because it's kind of cool. It is cool. Thank you. Um, so one other uh, question I kind of wanted to talk about too in the Mary Lincoln world. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe some some things that you discovered in your research, or just you know maybe just some discussion points on uh, Mary Lincoln's relationship with Elizabeth Keckley and how you know was that important? It, it, it seems like re more recently in scholarship, Elizabeth Keckley is kind of coming more to the forefront and becoming uh, more of an important figure in the Lincoln narrative, um, at least than I remember from my amateur right. scholarship. Exactly, exactly. Well, I think the, the, the Mary Lincoln's relationship with Elizabeth Keckley is really important for two, two reasons. The first is that she, she really does become Mary's best intimate female friend in Washington. Um, there's absolutely no doubt about that. These two women were inseparable. They were talking and crying all the time with each other. They, they were engaged in the war. And I think that without Elizabeth Keckley, Mary's time in Washington would have even been more difficult than it was. I think that it was an extremely personal and important relationship for Mary Lincoln. The second reason why I think it's important is because Elizabeth Keckley really pushed Mary Lincoln along um, in the idea of race and the, um, the contraband that were, were arriving in D.C. and free blacks everywhere needing help. Uh, Elizabeth Keckley was really involved in help societies in Washington, D.C., and Mary Lincoln allowed her to use her name to raise funds. And Mary Lincoln also contributed funds and helped out. She put Elizabeth Keckley in touch with wealthy women in Philadelphia and in New York and also in D.C. that helped raise money for contraband um, needs in uh, D.C. All of these free pe free people arriving in DC they needed food they needed shelter they needed medicines and clothing and Elizabeth Keckley was involved in that and Mary Lincoln helped her with that I also think that that kind of then is an, a buzz in Lincoln's ear right because I mean, we don't know we don't have any evidence of this but I have absolutely no doubt that well, we have one piece of evidence um, that Mary Lincoln was constantly telling Lincoln, you know, we need to, to, you know, this is what's happening to black people in DC. And this Elizabeth Keckley is doing this and she's raising money for this. And we, I just got somebody in uh, Philadelphia to give money for this. So you know that that's buzzing in Lincoln's ear. And there's one point at which Mary actually asks Lincoln for money to give, to give a loan to Elizabeth Keckley. And so we know that there was at least one, there's one piece of evidence, but I think that that was probably an ongoing thing too. So that is, I think, it's not, it's not that I would make an argument that it changed Lincoln's philosophy or his policies, but it was definitely in his ear um, what Elizabeth Keckley was doing and what those aid societies were doing and what they were facing. Um, and what, what the needs were in Washington, D.C. So I think that's also important. That, and Elizabeth Keckley, you got to, you know, she takes the credit for that. That's, yeah, I'm, that was a great answer. Thank you, because, uh, you know, I do think that the narrative still is, like, confidant while putting on very difficult to put on wardrobe, you know, and, like, well, I, yes. you know, and the, the aid society things and the, like, the really truly, you know, getting a multiple perspective on, 
on race and on that. Exactly. Like, I think is missed a lot in the historic narrative. So I really appreciate it. That, oh, there's that always more going on when, when a dressmaker is making a dress for a lady like Mary Lincoln, there is a whole lot more than just dressmaking going on. You can be sure. Um, I also think they bonded in the loss of the war as well. After Willie died, Keckley was a real comfort to Mary. Uh, Keckley gave her own son to in the he was a a soldier who lost his life in the Union in the Union Army. So they shared that bond and they also they suffered the grief um, kind of of the war together. And I think that that's, um, you know, really important, not only to Mary's story, but also to the story of of black people in Washington um, in during the Civil War. I feel like I'm dominating the question, so I'm going to turn it over to the other my other co-hosts here. You go ahead, Mary. I mean, I got a lot, but okay. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering, um, what are some of your favorite letters um, that you've come across in your research of Mary Lincoln? And they don't necessarily have to be ones that she wrote to to Abraham. But just, um, are there any that stand out in your mind that really um, define who she was as a person, perhaps? Oh, wow. Well, I will say there is, um, I, I'll start with uh, probably the least probably well-known. Um, when Mary Lincoln, um, after she was incarcerated at Batavia, um, at, she went to France. She basically put herself, self-imposed exile from the United States. Uh, she moved. She moved to a little town in the French Pyrenees, where she lived for four years um, as an expat. Um, and she did a little bit of traveling, but she was not in very good health at all during that time. And Robert Lincoln, even though he was made to be convinced that she was okay, he didn't really think that she was was mentally healthy. Um, and everybody in, in the newspapers were t saying that she was crazy. Um, a lot of her, you know, people in her circle thought she was crazy. She was definitely eccentric. There's no doubt about that. But so she gets to she gets to France and she there's this group of letters. There's, I don't know, about 100 letters that she wrote from in, during those four years when she was in in France to Jacob Bunn, who is um, he was a friend of Lincoln's in Springfield, Illinois. And he basically um, she basically puts him in charge of all of her finances in the United States. He's Springfield based um, and she left from Springfield. So he's handling all of her affairs, making sure that her, pen, you know, getting her pensions deposited and all of that kind of stuff, wiring, you know, sending her money, all that stuff. So there is a series of letters, about 100 of them that she writes to Jacob Bunn. And there is if you read these hundred letters, there is no way these are the letters of a crazy woman. These are the letters of a woman who has has sorrow. There's no doubt. But this is a woman who knows what the exchange rates are. She understands what the politics are in Europe. She's she's wondering what's going on with the American government. Um, these are the letters of a lucid, opinionated, strong-willed woman. And so I think they cast a totally different light on her post-insane trial and short stint in Batavia that I think are really important and are totally ignored because... Most people who have written about Mary Lincoln don't care anything at all about her after Lincoln is dead. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, I think, those are, I think, really interesting and revealing letters. Um, even though they're not terribly 
juicy, you know, or they're not sexy at all. They're a lot of their business. A lot of them are kind of businessy, but I think they are illustrative of a lucid mind, a woman who she's in Europe living by herself. You know, I mean, it's, I think a pretty amazing group of letters. Mm -hmm. So that's probably my favorite in terms of kind of casting Mary in a different new light. I remember reading about the that you mentioned that in the the book about him and I re- about her and I remember reading that and thinking like wow like why don't we know more about this period of her life where she clearly um, has it together again right well nobody cares because yeah. Lincoln is dead I mean you know let's be honest I mean it's Lincoln is gone and yeah. nobody really cares um, so that's why <laughs> I yeah. guess. So I would, what I would really love to do, you know, if I, if money were no object, I would love to go to the little town in France where she lived and try to do some research. I'd have to take a French speaker with me. Are any of you speak, speak French? No. Um, <laughs> because I know there's probably documents there, um, but, you know, we don't know. It'd be kind of fun to just kind of know. I'd like to know more about what she was doing kind of on the day to day. The only one little story that we know about her there, I mean, I know about her travels and I know she writes some letters that reveal, you know, like what she's doing. Um, But, you know, the Grants were there on their world tour. And now Julia Grant in her memoir says she, oh, I didn't know Mary Lincoln was there until we were gone. I call BS on that. But Mary Lincoln probably wouldn't have seen them. And there's but there's absolutely no way that Mary didn't know that General Grant and mm-hmm. Julia Grant were in this tiny little town in the French Pyrenees uh, when she was living there. So that is a meeting that I wish could have happened, that Julia and Mary could have met on that neutral kind of play, beautiful place and had a, had a, had a sit down and just talk, talk about the war and about but unfortunately and sadly, Mary didn't have that, you know, she just didn't have that capacity mm-hmm. to overcome her petty grievances against people. Yep. So that's that's kind of sad. But but anyway, those letters that those widow letters um, are really, I think they're wonderful. And that's just so awesome. just so our listeners yeah. know, so um, chronologically, that's that's just, you know, shortly after the presidency, the Lincoln presidency, correct? Um when, no, this is late. This is late. This is after Tad has died. Well, she goes to Europe the first time with Tad on a grand okay. tour. Um, but this is later. This is 77. I, I wrote down a couple of dates. I'm terrible with dates. Oh, so it's post-Grant um, presidency. Oh, yeah, yeah. Grant was on his world tour. It was um, 18. She was in Po, France from eight, September about 18, 1876 and about September to October of 1880. Okay. Uh, before she then came home because she was, she had terrible, uh, her spine was deteriorating and she had kidney failure and she was going blind. Uh, she f- suffered a fall, which, I mean, she just really had to go home. Um, but she was there for four years, almost right before she died. So much later. Okay, thank you. Yeah, sorry. No, no, I should. I should have. I, I, I should. I should be saying sorry for screwing up the dates. Yeah. No, Grant's world. Yeah, Grant's <laughs> world tour was what I. You know, I should know this because I'm working on a Julia Grant chronology, but I'm like I said, I'm terrible with dates. They were 77 to to 79 um, in in Europe, and I can't remember exactly when they were in this little town with Mary Lincoln, but it was late in that uh, trip. 
Um, today, uh, I was jealous that Mary saw you speak in person at that thing. So <laughs> I, I went on, um, the, you know, the Google machine, and I saw your speech at Fourth Theater through C-SPAN. Oh, right. Um, yes. Yes. Um, which was awesome, by the way. So our listeners, use the Google machine. Oh, when you were writing this book, you had to overcome some biases and you briefly touched on kind of your research process. Um, first of all, could you kind of talk about the biases you had to overcome and kind of how you go about writing a book like you did? Well, um, I did have my own biases. I mean, Michael Burlingame has his. He hates Mary. I had my biases. I loved her. I thought Lincoln chose her, so she must be great. I mean, that was sort of the way I approached Mary Lincoln all along. Abraham Lincoln chose her to be his wife. So, and Abraham Lincoln is pretty awesome. So surely he would choose a pretty awesome wife, right? Um, but I had my own biases because I thought, oh, she was super smart. She knew a lot about politics. She um, was opinionated and she wanted to like make policy and she could have, you know, whoa, she could have run for office and blah, you know, going crazy like that. But what I what you learn is when you read about Mary is she wasn't radical at all. I mean, she had really strong opinions about politics. She was super well read and she was smart as a whip. She understood the ins and outs of how p- politics worked, um, but she didn't want to run for office. She didn't. She wasn't supportive of, of uh, she wasn't, no, she was no friend of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She wasn't interested in women voting. Um, it never occurred to her to think about her political kind of interests outside of Lincoln's political interests. And everything that she thought and did politically was really all in the context of Abraham Lincoln's uh political career. And so that's something that I kind of had to learn, right? I mean, I just figured, oh, she would have busted out if she could have, but society brought her down. And, but that's just not, that's just not the case. She was a a woman of a, you know, kind of a, she was a Southern belle and she was raised within though that, that the parameters of that society, which can kind of constricted gender. And she, she didn't have a problem with that. She really didn't. Um, and so she isn't Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She's not interested in voting or go, being wishing she could have been born in a different time. She really did see her political interests within the confines of, of her marriage and Lincoln's political career. So that's something that I had to learn along the way, I think. So one of the things that I, I decided to do early on in my process, I, I was thinking, how do I get wrap my head around this and do this? Because I have all this background noise, right? I've been studying Lincoln for 20 years. I've worked in the Lincoln field all these years. I, I, I could probably sit down and write Mary's biography without even really doing research, right? So I decided what I would do is kind of turn everything off. And I really did. I sat down and I just read all of her letters and I didn't take any notes. Um, and I read all the letters out loud because I wanted to hear her voice as well as see the words. And so what it allowed me to do was to kind of think about how how Mary Lincoln, with blinders on, as much as you can. I mean, it's not, obviously, it's not perfect. But you put the blinders on and you try to hear Mary going from year to year, right? So to try to get a sense of how she saw the world, um, how she viewed what was happening to her, um, how she understood um, her relationships. Um, and so that really helped me get inside her head a little bit, I, I think. Um, and then it made me decide to really try to tell her story from her point of view, uh, let her have her say over all these 
Blinken biographers who have been speaking for her all these years. So that was kind of my my approach. Um, and this biography, it's really short. It's in a series um, called Historical Americans. So it's designed to be short. Um, and so that's hard too, to write such a magnificent uh, life in a short time. And I was not going to leave out the her widowhood. That was That's a whole chapter in the book. And so um, it was, you know, basically just letting Mary, I tried to let Mary tell as much of the story as was possible. That was my approach. Wow, that's, I, I really enjoyed listening to that. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I would like to also point out, because um, I can't shut my educator switch off. Um, if any of our younger listeners are out there, you know, we talk about reading all the time. And like, I think we have this view when we're teaching about how serious this, the process is. And I really, really loved hearing you say that you read it out loud because we try yes. to get, we try to get learners to do that. You know, like it's, yes. if you're not understanding the text, read it out loud. And, you know, of course, you know, oh, you, you know, that's not, that's not academic. That's oh. not, you know, and I want to be like, well, clearly it is. <laughs> if, no, if, it totally if it's not is. Right and, here, so. and in fact, I'll, I'll double down on that too. It drives my husband crazy because I work from home, right? So in a loft with no walls <laughs> and my office is kind of in the middle of things. But um, when I'm editing, when I'm proofing documents, I do it all out loud. I read it. So I'm hearing it and seeing it. It just gives you an F extra chance to catch that Oh, they spelled it. They spelled it that wrong. And I, you know, you might, it's just a, another check on making the transcription is absolutely perfect as it can possibly be. So yeah, reading and th I read and think out loud all the time. So I also talk a lot. So that's probably part of it too. <laughs> no, I really liked, that was great to get a glimpse of your process. Yeah, I can second that reading out loud. Cause when I, before I publish a blog post, I read it yep. out loud. Mm -hmm. And then I ask my partner, Jer, to come upstairs and he's got to sit at the kitchen table while I read it and out loud to, to him. And then I read it out loud again. <laughs> yeah. Yep, I do. Every blog post on my, on my personal blog, too, I read them all out loud before I hit the, the publish yep. button. Yep. All right. Student Sometimes learners when I tweet, and student readers. I read them out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when I'm tweeting at Fillmore. So. And there it is. I read that out loud so he understands the trash talking. <laughs> so in just kind of to get back and I, I did have a question kind of pop in my head when you were talking about um, I really um, liked how you were talking about how uh, Mary Lincoln relates to other feminists and you know um, and also how you kind of opened with how feminist historians have kind of tried to change the narrative maybe a little bit so where does Mary Lincoln fit in feminist history in your opinion what you know would you would you put her in the canon of, of seminal historic figures um, with regard to feminism? Um, because no, to me, I, it's, uh, you know, I'm, go ahead, sorry. No, I probably would not. Um, I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're a feminist historian, you're not going to choose Mary Lincoln. Um, she doesn't, none of her letters reveal anything at all that would indicate that she's thinking about women's rights. Um, there's, there's no indication at all that she even, I mean, it's possible I, she would have known about the Seneca Falls Convention, for example, in 1848, but we don't know if she even commented on it. Um, we do know that she, she didn't tend to, in Springfield and in Washington, attend lectures that were kind of tending that way. She preferred more uh, entertainment kinds of um, social and civic out, outings, so she preferred plays and 
and uh, recitations of, of poetry and, um, you know, Dickens, that kind of, the, you know, readers. She didn't attend a lot of, of talks. I don't, we don't think, I don't think she saw, you know, Emerson or Thoreau or um, she just, there's just no evidence at all to suggest that she was thinking about pressing boundaries. But where I do think um, she's interesting in women's history, though, because I think she straddles kind of this really interesting period of time where women were learning. They were starting to go. They were starting to be educated. They were definitely starting to be interested in politics. You know, the Whig women, it's a big thing. The Whig party was like grabbing women all over the place, bringing them to rallies. They were they were writing campaign literature. Um, so they were engaged, but almost all of these Whig women—they, you know—they were political wives. They were, you know, just you know, they were just regular people who weren't interested in really kind of changing things. But they're in this sort of middle ground of where there is sort of this transition, right? So they're they're knowledgeable and they're engaged, but in the confines of a marriage situation. Where twenty years before, like Mary's Mary Link, or Mary um, Todd's mother wasn't interested in politics, um, and so you know the, she's kind of represents this kind of uh, middle period, which I find those middle periods really interesting because they're messy and that you can't define them and they make us ask really uh, kind of probing questions. So in that con in that context, I would say that she might be somebody that you would look to, but a feminist historian who's writing about Margaret Sanger or, or Elizabeth Cady Stanton or, you know, Mary Lincoln's not going to make the cut. Yeah. I still think, uh, you know, I really liked how you, um, how you were talking because I, I, you know, I think that just the history of women, is different than feminist, you know, the history of feminism. Right, exactly. Um, and, and that's just the... Yeah, I really liked how you kind of painted, the, painted right. that dichotomy. That was very, very enlightening. Right. Yeah. Um, real, a couple things. Um, this is like flying by because this, <laughs> this is great stuff. Uh, we do talk on the show from time to time about Illinois history just because, um, and this is probably a skewed view because I'm from Illinois, but like, Lincoln history and Illinois history are so entwined and you can't escape it. Um, so I, looking over um, just your vitae here, and um, you did do a little bit of work also with Jane Addams' papers. Yeah, um, that's where I work now. Oh, good. Okay. So have you, have you, mm -hmm. I, we, I live in Rockford, Nick and I live in Rockford, Illinois. Um, so like we've tried as hard as we can to like take Jane Addams as our own because she went to school here and she was born down the, yeah, down the road. Yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I guess I really don't Cedarville. have a question. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that is really close to where we are. So, yeah, um, and not many people know that. It's a very, very nondescript kind of tiny little place that, that her grave is. But um, anyway, uh, how's how's that work going? What's what's that? Good, so what's, it's how's really good. So I left uh, the Lincoln Papers. Um, and I had a little uh, interim period where I helped do some consulting work at the University of Illinois there. Um, and you might know this there. The University of Illinois Springfield is developing a Lincoln Studies Center. Um, so there I did a, some consulting work for them. And then in January of 17, I started working at the Jane Addams Papers. So I've kind of come full circle because I started my graduate training um, in the progressive era. Uh, I did my master's thesis on Ida B. Wells on a lynching that happened in 1909. And here I am back, you know, editing the fourth volume of the Jane Addams papers, which is the years 1901 to 1913. 
So that's great. I love it. It's the same kind of work that I did at the Lincoln Papers, you know, editing. Um, I'm not doing any of the transcriptions. Those are that's being done by a core of students at Ramapo College in New Jersey. Um, I'm just really editing the book edition, selected the documents, um, and then working with two other editors to do the annotation for those. So I love it, it's great. Uh, I wish more people knew about Jane Adams. She's amazing. And I've been starting to tweet a little bit about her. Um, when I'm working on documents, I read something that she wrote, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is pertinent for today. Um, so it makes me worry that we haven't come very far since. 1912 but <laughs> yeah and if you're yeah. if you're a history uh tourist at all ever um a great i mean her birthplace and where she's buried in cedarville is super close to the lincoln douglas debate site in freeport illinois i mean not super close like across the street yeah. but i mean it's like yeah. You know 10 minute drive probably so yes um, and i need i need to make a pilgrimage there because i have not been to cedarville ever i've been to freeport but i've not been to cedarville and george buss who is a uh, known him for a long time he's a lincoln presenter and you know that there's they call themselves presenters you don't call them lincoln impersonators um or you offend um but george buss lives up in that area and he's promised to give me a whole tour of the jane adams stuff. So I definitely need to do that this summer. And I've been to Hull House um, a couple of times over the years, but I haven't been since I've been working for the Jane Addams Papers. Mm. So that's another thing that is definitely on my on my to-do list. Yeah. And there's a little there's a little pocket in Rockford um, where she went to. At the time, it was called Rockford Seminary, which I'm... Right. Um, it's no longer there... the school there. The school moved, uh, but there's... You can see where it is, and it's okay. Is there? Is there? Are there buildings extant? Uh, no. Uh, no, no, there's no. no um, there's like I think there's just like a marker. Um, it's 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 been it, it was it was downtown, and now there's like a, there's like a water treatment facility. It's not it's not the nicest part of Rockford. Yeah. Um, and then they kind of moved it east, but the university uh, it's since now changed to Rockford College and then to Rockford University. They've done a really nice job, um, kind of honoring her for a while there was yeah. a little it was a little kitschy they like had this ad yeah. campaign where people like held like uh you know popsicle stick masks you know of like i'm uh. jane it was really really strange <laughs> like I, you know i don't know what what level of social activism was going on but they were you know they they their um their little tagline was jane adams college for a long time so um but anyway that is like a really i think it's a really nice connection to um, yeah. Northern Illinois history. Uh, for listeners out there who aren't familiar, Jane Adams was a social activist. Um, she did Hull House, which is it's kind of by the United Center where the Bulls and the Blackhawks play in Chicago. Um, but um, on the UIUC campus. Yeah. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. Adams with two D's. If you're googling. Um, Adams with two D's. Right. Yep. Yep. So. Um, yeah, uh, and then of course um, that's kind of in that same corridor as if you're going to Galena. Um, yeah. Freeport's not far from. Galena, if you're, right. you know, if you're, if you're up for a drive and it's one of the most beautiful spots of Illinois. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, there's a great statue in Galena of Julia Grant, actually. Yeah. And, and there's a uh, rail splitter, Nick and rail splitter, Jeremy's house. That's which, true. Ah, of course. Which are on nobody's maps. No, <laughs> no, but, but we would welcome any rail splitter fans. So, um, oh, might have to make a road trip sometime, but it's so, you know, it's, it's funny too, when you talk about history, cause like, you know, if Abraham Lincoln stayed in a building or was rumored to stay in, stay in a building for one night, it's like, 
people fight over that history and want to prove it and all this stuff. But yet there's so much other history out there that's just so fascinating. So, um, so yeah, anyway, I just kind of wanted to bring up Jane Addams because, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk about her too. She's, she's pretty awesome. Right, right. And just for our listeners, we are planning on doing some stuff. Um, the great state of Illinois is just about to turn 200. So we're going to try to try to hook up with some some folks that are planning some bicentennial stuff and mm-hmm. um, right. kind of kind of play that up as well. Because, um, you know, you've got Lincoln and Grant and, and Jane Adams and, and I'm just I'm a proud Illinoisan. So um, yeah. and we're doing all we can to get Mary to come come down and visit us. So I plan to. I'm hoping maybe in the summer. <laughs> And then uh, in the fall, we could do the rail splitter trip to France, right? Yeah. <laughs> all yes. four of us. All four of us will just go yeah, to France. Yeah, that's Yeah. Like, that's an awful that lot of wine. So I thought you guys were, were supposed to be working. Like, well, <laughs> it's the South yeah. France. Well, well, the one thing I didn't say is when I was reading, the, when I did the first pass read of Mary's letters and I was reading them out loud, I was drinking wine all the while as well. Um, and I only had one dog at the time, but she had to listen to it all with me. She Aww. sat with me the whole time. So, but wine was definitely involved in all that reading out loud. Yeah, wine is usually involved in my blog post too. I usually, if I, if I'm writing, I sit down on a Friday night with a glass of wine and I just start writing and researching. Yeah. See, there's no real yep. connection with Lincoln and bourbon, but I do it with bourbon. Connect, I mean, Kentucky. <laughs> you know, okay, so. Um, so, um, yeah, he did not drink himself. But. No, no, but yeah, we're trying and to make it. Neither did connections. Mary. Neither did Mary. Um, can you, um, one thing I think we, we didn't ask about, and then I want, I want to ask you about some other Lincoln-related questions, but um, Lincoln, uh, Mary Lincoln before the presidency, um, is there anything about her in your research that kind of jumped out as fascinating or something that um, – that, that you think maybe some, some earlier or amateur scholars of, of Mary Lincoln would want to know about? Well, one of the things that I think is really important, um, not only with Mary Lincoln, but I think with any historical character that we are interested in, I think their, their physical kind of environment is really important. A lot of what's one of the things that's really important in any work that I do is, is the sense of place that somebody comes from. So I, I am always very descriptive or try to find out as much details I can about a place. And when I was doing the Lincoln, uh, the Mary Lincoln biography, biography, obviously I needed to learn a lot. I knew a lot about Springfield already, but I needed to learn a lot about Lexington, Kentucky, which I knew nothing about really, you know, a few things because a lot of Lincoln people kind of came from there, Transylvania University and whatnot. So um, what I learned about, but what I learned about Lexington, I think informed a lot of who Mary became. Lexington was really refined for its its day, right? It had colleges and opera houses and theaters, but it was a really violent place too. It was it was a frontier place, and it, there was there were guns and whiskey, and it was loud and boisterous and dangerous and rough. But it also had this uh, really sophisticated, refined kind of social context as well. So those two kinds of things right there next to each other, rubbing against each other. Um, and then, you, of course, you have the whole context of slavery. You have this, you know, kind of this ugly underbelly of slavery and the slave market right up the street from where Mary grew up and and also being raised by black, a black woman. And so all of these kind of undercurrents of Lexington, you can see it really when when Mary comes to Springfield, Lexington is in her. I mean, it, it's so much of what you can explain about her fiery, her fiery temper, her 
her uh, crazed interest in politics. Lexington was a crazy political place. I mean, there were brickbat wars. People literally lined up, uh, political parties would line up on opposite sides of the street and throw bricks at each other. It was a, it was a hostile political environment and, and the Todd family was very much in the middle of all of that. And because Mary was interested, her father kind of encouraged it. So when Mary gets to Springfield, she's she really is a product of Lexington. She's hot headed and but she's refined and she's she you know she's smart and quiet and can do all the lady Southern Belle stuff. But she's going to be right in the middle of all of those social engagements, telling Stephen Douglas what's up with politics. So you know it really her her upbringing, her sense of place really helps us understand her so much better. And so for me, it's not only informative for Mary, but it's also instructive of how we do history. Because if we can try to get a sense of where people come from and what their kind of interlapping relationships were at the base of where they're living, um, I think we can learn a whole hell of a lot about them that we might otherwise miss. This is definitely the case with Lincoln, right? I mean, New Salem, obviously historians have done it with New Salem. New Salem is formative for Lincoln and Springfield is too in a lot of ways. Um, you know, that book, Here I Have Lived, I think is one of the single most important Lincoln books because it, it puts him in the place in which he became the man that he was. And so I think those are really important historical lessons to learn every, again and again, over and over, regardless of what, um, you, know, care, you know, what you're studying at, at a given moment, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's, I mean, we were just kind of chatting earlier about, um, you know, history tourism, I like to call it, but it's, you know, I just like feel that energy, you know, when you're kind of standing mm -hmm. there, and I mean, Springfield is unavoidable, but I'm um, just kind of any yeah. of those places. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite places, um, or, or where I've got kind of a similar feel to what you were talking about of getting a sense for a place is, it was, oddly, in Springfield, like, they've got those plaques, those Looking for Lincoln plaques. Yes. There's, there's, one, there's <laughs> one downtown that talks about like a boarding house type place where where the Lincolns lived when they first got married. Right. Yeah, I know um, exactly where it is. I can picture it. Yeah. I know that. Like, like in my head, I'm like seeing like because you, you, you Lincoln home is just kind of etched in everybody's brain like, oh, very successful attorney and, you know, writes writes all the time for the Sangamon Journal and becomes president. Oops. Um, but in reality, like there was a struggle and, and even when they were married. So like that would like, you kind of get this idea of them living in this one room with a, with a, a young family and, right. um, and it's not really there, but just standing there, you kind of get this feel, Yeah. you know, it's yeah. I, that, that kind of stuff just as an amateur historian. I just, I love that. It's, I can't get exactly. Enough of it, so exactly. I recently had the opportunity, um, the, Tim Townsend, he, he's a wonderful, uh, wonderful historian of the Lincoln home in Springfield. He does this, program with African-American, mostly African-American students. It's not all African-American students, but um, in the Springfield schools, and he takes them on these history trips in the summertime and they spend the night and they go. But, but the point is, is to have the kids really kind of tactically engage with, uh, the, you know, black history in Illinois and the, the, you know, the, all the wide ranges of that. And I had the opportunity to go talk to the kids when they were in Vandalia, um, the old courthouse, they came and that's, it's not a very 
well done historic site, but there's so much important black history there because that's where, you know, the laws were made. Um, and so it was just really great to, to be with the kids in that historic place and to talk to them about uh, one particular law. I just talked talk to them about one law that was passed, uh, a black man um, petitioning the legislature to have his name changed. Um, but it was just to be in the in the court in the old state capitol and to talk with the kids about that. I think you could really see, um, you know, it's the enthusiasm um, for just being there more than if you they were in their classroom at home. So it is. It's it's good to see. It's good to be a part of. Yeah, and I I mean just as an educator, like it, sometimes it's frustrating because like oh they, you know these kids can't you know visualize well they they literally can't like brain development isn't. It's difficult sometimes to conceptualize things right. that are outside your frame of reference. Right. So going there, yeah, that works. <laughs> yeah, know? it's like magic. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep, yep. So, uh, Mary Nick, did you have a question? I feel like I'm dominating the questions again, and I apologize. Um, my the one question that I have is, and Stacy, you and I have kind of we've discussed this on Twitter recently, and some some people might have seen it, but um, who like what is your favorite portrayal of Mary? Oh, well, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty whacked out, obsessed with the Spielberg Lincoln movie. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, all the Hollywood aside, I think that those, that, that those characters, Daniel Day-Lewis and Sally Field, that they really, to me, it's kind of goosebumps. It, I kind of got mm -hmm. goosebumps. I felt like both of them kind of inhabited the spirits of Abraham and Mary Lincoln. Um, so by hands down, definitely Sally Fields portrayal. And I, there are two scenes for me that just send me over the edge. And one is when they're, when they're fighting, Willie's died and they're fighting and they're in the bedroom and he's yelling at her to get a grip of herself and he's going to put her slap her in the nut house and all of that. And she's dealing with all of these these emotions, and she can, right? She's the first lady. She's she is Willie's mom, and she can totally break down. It's absolutely within her power and in her circumstances to do so, but Lincoln can't. And so I think what that scene does is it juxtaposes their relationships with the with grief over Willie in in a really real way that I myself think is exactly how it all went down. Mm -hmm. um, so I love that scene. And then of course at the end of the movie, the carriage ride, um, where you know uh, he basically tells her, "Ah, oh, nobody's gonna you know care um, that you know you were crazy or whatever." So I yeah definitely Sally Fields <laughs> for awesome. sure. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I would. Those were the exact two scenes that came to mind as soon as you yep. said that for me Same too, because I felt yeah. like a real fight. You know, like yeah. when they did, I'm like, wow, that was intense, and it was just so much passion. But at the same time, you're like, that's how people fight. <laughs> that's you know, yeah, that, that's exactly. like exactly. You know, that's how you know my marriage is great. Exactly. You know, but like that's how it happens. You know. No, it's so. Uh, it, it was so perfect, and mm -hmm. it also spoke to their what was what was what they were able to do and that they, they really couldn't help each other. I mean, it, there wasn't, it wasn't really possible for them to do that, but you can see their pain and you can also see their commitment, their connection to each other. Uh, but also I think it's just a really real and captures the spirit, I think. Of. And then you find out that they texted each other using those names and everything. And it's just, Oh, yeah, I, I, it's just so I don't know. I really like like listening to a professional scholar talk about like 
yeah, it's okay to really like the movie too, <laughs> you know, because yeah, we I talk actually, about I wrote, yeah, I wrote a blog post about um, the movie, Mary in the movie. Um, yeah, I so <laughs> I think it's great. And I'm not one of those historians either who um, thinks that we shouldn't have some, you know, literary license in a movie. I, I'm not going to a, a Hollywood movie to learn about history. I might want to go to a Hollywood movie to kind of be inspired by history or to enjoy a historical kind of piece, but I'm not going to fuss over, um, you know, niggling details. I'll, I'll tell a funny story kind of related to this. So when I worked at the Lincoln Papers, we used to go on field trips. Um, you know, we were in our offices and in the library all the time. And the director at the time, he just always wanted to get us out to do something together. So we would go on really dorky Lincoln field trips. And we went to a few movies over the years. And we, we went one day, we in the afternoon, after lunch, we left our offices and we went to the Lincoln vampire movie. <laughs> and so here are, I don't know, eight of us, eight, it's got eight, probably six of us had PhDs. The other two had master's degrees. Here we are at a movie theater in the, you know, matinee in the afternoon, the middle of the week. And we've just watched Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter or whatever it's called. <laughs> And we, we're, we're kind of coming out of the theater and we all kind of form a circle outside of the theater. And one of my colleagues said, oh, man, can you believe that those horses, they didn't have, they didn't use horses like that. And then somebody else says, oh, my God, the marriage scene. That's not how the marriage. And I just looked at them and I'm like, really? I mean, we're going to have an historical context, you know, discussion here. <laughs> it's a ba it's a ba like, it's a vampire hunter, people. So, I mean, some people just can't, they can't help themselves, but I can, I can, I can en just enjoy it. So. Yeah. I, I was the same way. Like I'm like the casting for Douglas was terrible. I don't like, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to suspend disbelief in the vampires, but like you, the guy was too tall to play Douglas. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it didn't do the book justice. That was my, but the book was good. I'm telling you the book was, cause the, yeah, the, the book, book was, was a awesome. mashup. Like it was so clever the way that he brought vampires yep. into every aspect of historically biographically right. yeah, accurate yeah, yeah. things. I liked it. I liked the book. I'll, it was good. Yeah. Um, the movie, not so much. No, the movie's terrible. <laughs> terrible. I saw it at midnight. It was uh, like the release and it was terrible. Uh, real quick, one more, cause we are coming up on an hour. So we try to keep the shows to about an hour. I did notice as I was kind of going through that you uh, wrote an essay um, that just kind of jumped out at me. You've written many essays on, on Lincoln and the Lincolns and Mary Lincoln, but the one about uh, uh, baseballs and ballots. Um, oh, yes. Can you I talk about that? That just kind of jumped out at yes. me. Like, can you talk about that? Oh, my God. This is an amazing story. And I've never done anything, you know, real big with it because I don't know where you would go from there. And I don't have time to study baseball. Um, but I there was that there was a baseball game in 1860. Um I think it was the Excelsior. I'm, you're going to test my my memory here because I wrote this article a long time ago. The Excelsior Baseball Club, I think it was, and they were having a political fight amongst themselves, and they, you know, were fighting about whether they were going to vote for Lincoln or whether they're going to vote for Douglas. So they actually staged an, a baseball game. Of course, this is when baseball is two words, people. So it's a very <laughs> different kind of a game. It's baseball. Um, so in 1860, I think it was July. Um, they have this baseball game, and I think the final score, I believe, I think the Douglas team, the Douglas team won 16 to 14 runs or whatever. But there was a big write-up about it in the in the paper, and that's all. I mean, that's but 
it's funny and interesting. And I think it it shows how kind of sport is converging with nationalism and politics. And and it also, too, um, kind of, I thought, although nobody will ever care, um, there is a there is one book about the baseball starting. And the whole premise of the, of the main history of baseball is that the Civil War spread it. And so the Civil War made it popular. But Baseball was already pretty well underway in Chicago and in Illinois before the Civil War. And in fact, this baseball game happened um, on the eve of the Civil War. And there's another kind of sidebar story um, that there was a unit from Illinois that was in the Battle of Chickamauga. And they brought a piece of wood, a big piece of wood from the battlefield. And they brought it back and they had it fashioned into a bat and they had a baseball tournament. And then I think the winner um, got the, the, the kind of this trophy bat, which was a piece of wood from the Chick Chickamauga battlefield. So baseball is already becoming kind of entwined in politics um, even before the Civil War. It's an interesting story. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great story. Uh, I wish the Lincolnites would have won, but you know. They did not win, but Lincoln won the real thing. So that's really all that matters. It right? is all that matters. So it's, it was one of the early disappointments in Illinois baseball for, for us. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Stacey, thank you much for so much for coming on. We do have our thank weekly. You. you guys are awesome. Oh thank yeah. We, we love talking oh, Lincoln you. and anytime you want to come on, just let us know. Cause I know we haven't even scratched the surface on a lot of things that you've done <laughs> quite a lot of work with, especially, um, your time with the Lincoln papers and, um, and everything else, it was a fascinating glimpse into to two things. One, your work, and also just kind of the life of a historian. So I thank you so much for that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys. Uh, we, we do have a weekly feature on our show that I think Mary may have told you about. Um, and this fits right into a lot of things that you tweet about and put on because you've got the tagline, Lincoln Lunacy. Yes. We've basically taken the exact same idea. I shouldn't say taken because I didn't know it was a thing until we had already done it. Well, ours, it's, we not, call it's, ours just, this... it's not really a thing. It's just kind of my thing. <laughs> we, we call ours This Week in Lincoln, which is like pretty much the same thing as your Lincoln Lunacy things. But mm -hmm. we, and, and apparently we were joining you on our fascination with where he pops up completely out of context and for funny yes. reasons and pop culture. Yes, I love out of context Lincoln. It's right. the best. Marketing, pop culture, all that stuff. So yes. We are going to ask you as our guest, a supplier this week in Lincoln, what is your favorite uh, piece of Lincoln oh. lunacy? Oh, you know, I think probably my, I mean, a genre of Lincoln lunacy that I am particularly enamored with are liquor. So there are, there, there is, well, there's one, there's one microbrew pub. I think it's in Kentucky. All of their beers are Lincoln related. So they're, you know, I don't remember what they're all called, but all of their all of their labels have Lincoln in the title or there's something about Lincoln and his face is on the bottles. So I think liquor and I think it's because I think it's funny because Lincoln didn't drink. Um, and so it's kind of interesting. I actually have. Let me see if I. Oh, I do. I have it pretty handy. This, by the way, is obviously a rail splitter road trip. To the, this, this is one of my newer ones. Um, I don't know if you could see it. It's it's a it's a cup that somebody bought me because now that I am a Lincoln Lunacy collector <laughs> of stuff, people bring me things. This is a it's called Drinking with Lincoln. <laughs> Can you awesome. see that? That's and what we like should have named the show. It's just a mason jar. <laughs> And it says on this side, wherever you are, be a good one. 
whatever you are, yeah. be a good one. So that's the, you know, Lincoln telling everybody to, you know, be honest or whatever. And then it came with, um, and the reason why I kept the little paper is it came with um, a cocktail called Drink Big Abe's Lemon Abe. <laughs> so, so a lemon Abe, a lemon Abe is a 12 ounce count of your favorite frozen lemonade, a four cups of water, two cups of sparkling lemon water, four shots of pomegranate juice, and then mint sprigs and lemon wedges to taste. Doesn't even have alcohol in it. <laughs> I'm sure you could ever you you could could improvise. You need to add some Knob Creek bourbon. Exactly. That's exactly right, Mary. I agree. Yeah, or vodka or whatever. But it's just these are the kinds of things that just I don't know, I get a little tickle out of. Um, one of my favorite also, I have a an Abraham Lincoln rubber ducky, which I was hoping you would mention that because I've can you see that before. That is awesome. So I live in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. so they're not big on Lincoln here in Missouri. In fact, you know, they hate him. But um, there's a I live in kind of a hip, you know, liberal. St. Louis is a very liberal city, so it's not that surprising. But there was a a bin of presidential rubber duckies across the street at this little bodega that's right across the street from my house. And it was a whole bin full of presidential rubber duckies. I mean, they had Reagan and Theodore Roosevelt and George Washington. They had Obama. And I said to the guy, I was getting my coffee. I said, you have Lincoln? He goes, oh, yeah, we got some Lincolns. Dig around. And so sure enough, there were two Abraham Lincolns in there. So this is one of my favorite Lincoln That's lunacies. Awesome. That, awesome. Awesome. that was one of the, the that maybe the exact one was one of the first Lincoln gifts I, I got for my son when he was very little. Um, and a I got, Lincoln rubber ducky? Yeah. And uh, oh, I also yeah. got an Obama and I think a, t- a TR one, a yes. Teddy Roosevelt one. And um, yes. it was in Galena, actually, the little... Very probably very similar little bodega uh, kind of craft yes, shop. Yes, I so. pay I paid one dollar. It was one dollar. So it's my <laughs> cheapest Lincoln. Yeah, Lucy. yeah, worth it. Wow. Worth it. So. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you once again. Just a real quick reminder to our listeners. Uh, next week will be the first week of our Rail Splitter Book Club, where we'll talk about chapters one through four of Lincoln, the Man Who Saved America. Um, so hopefully you can read along with us. It's not required, but um, if you'd like to follow along, that would be great. Um, and then once again, thank you to Dr. Stacy Pratt McDermott for your expertise, your work with Lincoln, your organization of the Lincoln Papers everything that you do and of course for spending an hour with us to great to talk thank Lincoln. you it was so fun bye guys all righty thank you bye. again for thank listening you so uh, uh for real yeah. splitter mary and for real splitter nick i am real splitter jeremy signing off so reminding everybody to keep continuing to walk the world with malice toward none and with charity <laughs> for all and we will see you next week